This is the Daily Signal podcast for Wednesday, March 11th. I'm Virginia Allen. And I'm Rachel Dalgidis. On today's podcast, Katie McFarlane, Deputy National Security Advisor under Michael Flynn during the first four months of the Trump administration, and Fred Flights, President and CEO of the Center for Security Policy, joined Virginia to discuss national security challenges facing the United States, including China and the coronavirus outbreak. Don't forget, if you're enjoying this podcast, please be sure to leave us a review and a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts and encourage others to subscribe. Now, on to our top news. New York Governor Andrew Cuomo announced Tuesday the National Guard was coming to New Rochelle, a town outside of New York City that has had 108 coronavirus cases compared to the 36 in the city. We're also going to use the National Guard in the containment area to deliver food to homes to help the cleaning of public spaces, Cuomo said, according to the Rush transcript on his website. In a one-mile area, schools and churches will also be closed for two weeks. The stocks are rising after they had a tough day on Monday due to coronavirus fears. According to CNBC, the Dow Jones Industrial Average traded 100 points higher, or 0.3%, And earlier on Tuesday, 30 stock average was up 945 points. The S&P 500 was up 0.5% after jumping 3.7%. In order to address the economic uncertainty brought about by the coronavirus, President Donald Trump is asking Congress to pass a payroll tax cut and push for hourly wage earners to be able to take off work without fear of losing their jobs. The Daily Signal's Fred Lucas reported. The D.C. Circuit Court gave a win to House Democrats on Tuesday, deciding that the House should have access to all the grand jury materials that were part of special counsel Robert Mueller's probe into whether there was collusion between President Trump and Russia. The Justice Department is arguing the House should not have access to this material. Lawmakers, on the other hand, argue the information could be relevant for impeachment proceedings. It's likely this decision will be met with another appeal. Russian President Vladimir Putin is supporting a measure that would let him run again for president when his term expires in 2024. Per NBC News, Putin gave his support to the amendment put forward by lawmaker Valentina Tereshvoka, who proposed either scrapping Russian's two-term limit for presidents or resetting the clock so Putin's four terms wouldn't count. As all of Italy remains under lockdown, unprecedented measures are being announced. According to the BBC, Italy's deputy economy minister said that mortgage payments would be suspended. Right now, there have been over 9,000 cases of coronavirus in Italy. Over 450 men and women have died, according to CNN. Restaurants and bars must close at 6 p.m., and any non-essential travel is not permitted. People are being urged to stay home and stay distant from other people if they must go out. Now, stay tuned for my conversation with Katie McFarland, former Trump deputy, national security advisor, and Fred Flights, the president and CEO of the Center for National Security Policy. Do you have an opinion that you'd like to share? Leave us a voicemail at 202-608-6205 or email us at letters at dailysignal.com. Yours could be featured on the Daily Signal podcast. I am joined by Katie McFarland, former Trump Deputy National Security Advisor and author of Revolution, Trump, Washington, and We the People. Katie, thank you so much for being here. It's a pleasure. 
So let's talk a little bit about your time as President Trump's Deputy National Security Advisor. What policy initiatives are you most proud of helping to implement? Well, first I want to preface it by saying that I'm a traditional Republican foreign policy expert. Um, You know, I went to Oxford and MIT, uh, worked in the Nixon-Ford-Reagan administration. So I was about as traditional as you get. But then, in the last 10 or so years, I've become very dissatisfied with the direction of the foreign policy it was taking. And so I wasn't terribly excited about all the traditional candidates running in 2015 and 16. And when Trump came along, I liked him. And I was one of the first, you know, national recognized people to support him. And I did it for the following reasons. One, I think he understood that the main foreign policy issue was going to be China. And that we were we had spent too long in the Middle East in fighting wars we weren't going to win in places that didn't really matter. So China was the issue of the future. I think he also understood that you needed energy independence in the United States so we wouldn't be subject to the blackmail and the economic uncertainties of price rises or problems in the Middle East. And then as a main thing, he understood you have to fix the American economy first. If you don't fix the American economy, then nothing else really matters. You don't have any leverage. So for those reasons, I supported him. During the campaign, I joined his transition. I was one of his first appointments and went to Trump Tower to set up the National Security Council, even though it was remotely. And the thing that I'm most important about is really the sea change. So understand, get out of those wars in the Middle East, rebuild American defenses, make us energy independent, focus on China, fix the American economy, and from that position... Then to go around to our allies as well as um, our trading partners, friendly and foe, and renegotiate those agreements. And I think he's done them all way ahead of schedule, and I'm very proud that that was the direction that he set from the very beginning, and I was able to help him with it. Absolutely. How would you say that this administration has really furthered America's relationship on the world stage with international leaders? You know, a lot of people in the traditional foreign policy community have said, oh, well, Trump's not an American leader. He's given up America's leadership role in the world. China's going to be the American leader, take the place of American leadership. And I think they just didn't understand. Time has passed that by, that that whole model of the United States paying for everybody else, the United States underwriting the security agreements with our security partners, underwriting the economic development of developing countries, that's finished. That world doesn't exist anymore. We can't afford to do it. We don't need to do it. And as long as we act, as Reagan said, the shining city on the hill and the example to others, and we could also use, the what are our strengths? Well, our strengths are economic and technology. And use those as far more effective weapons in any kind of advancement of, um, of initiatives against our adversaries. And, and so that, I think, that's for me the proudest. I was a, I'm an era of the Vietnam War, and I remember being in the White House Situation Room working for Henry Kissinger the night we had to evacuate Americans from the rooftop of the American Embassy in Saigon. We had lost that war, and I remember promising to myself, because I knew people who died in that war, we are never again going to be in a war we can't win We are never again going to be in a position where we're just in a quagmire. We can't win it, but we won't leave it. The better thing to do is prevent it. And so I've always dedicated my life to a strong defense 
because if somebody comes after you, you've got to be able to defend yourself. But if your defense is so strong, they will be deterred and terrified of ever taking you on. That's the kind of foreign policy direction that Ronald Reagan had when I worked for him at the Pentagon, and I think Donald Trump has too. Let's talk a little bit more about America's relationship with China. Yeah. What, what's next? What, what should we be really focused on in regards to that relationship right now? Let me put coronavirus to one side. Okay, great. And talk about the relationship otherwise. Trump understood a fundamental fact. The Chinese need to export stuff that they make to us. We need to buy their stuff or their economy just declines. We did not export that much stuff to China. So we had a built-in advantage. We have a trade deficit, but a built-in advantage that we could use trade as a weapon. And the other thing is that the United States, I would say in the late 80s, 90s, and year 2000, we looked at the Chinese and we said, well, after World War II, we helped Europe, we helped Japan, we helped Korea, we helped them develop economically. We gave them preferential trade agreements. We underwrote their security. And we, as a result, have strong allies and partners and trading partners. We looked at China and said the same thing. We said, well, China's an underdeveloped country. We're going to help them develop. We're going to do it probably at the expense of our own manufacturing sector. We'll build theirs up. We will work with them, give them a lot of advantages, investments, um, transferring technology, because we think that China like Korea, like Japan, like Europe, like Germany, will become, um, as it becomes prosperous, develops a middle class, will become a more open society and a more equitable trading partner. We were wrong. We, the United States, were wrong. And so the recalibration of American foreign policy with regard to China, I think, is Trump's lasting legacy and the most important thing and the thing I am most proud of. Now, President Trump recently announced that he's appointed Richard Grinnell to be the acting director of national security. If Grinnell was sitting right here with us today, what would you want to tell him that he needs to be focused on? Okay, well, I would say, Rick, you did a good job. I brought him to Trump Tower to meet President Trump right after the election, and I convinced Rick to take the job, and I convinced President Trump to take Rick, and it's worked out very well. He's been the ambassador to Germany, I think, and very effectively so. I think that there are a couple of things that we're going to need in whoever the next national uh, director of national intelligence, DNI, that a couple of things we need. And, and here's what it is. One, the main, again, in line with China being the technology and strategic threat to the United States, we cannot allow China to get the technology high ground. China wants to build the Internet infrastructure of the future with this Huawei 5G network. And if that happens, that means China, the Chinese government, will be able to listen in to every phone call, every text message, every email. They will be in a position of really controlling our communication. We can't let that happen. So that's number one. Number two, I think that Grinnell actually, for me, if I were president, I would keep him as director of national intelligence and not just as acting because he understands that threat from technology. He understands the China threat. He's spoken out in the past and even in, in the Trump administration about the necessity of not letting the Chinese control and, and, and deal with and really create the infrastructure of the future. And he also understands Europe. That's where the fight is going to be over this. The United States has already said we are not going to allow the Chinese to build our 5G network. We have encouraged our allies to do the same. And the Europeans can't decide. They're trying to figure it out. Probably it'll be cheaper. I'm sure China will give them a good deal. But I think Rick Grinnell, because he understands the importance of 
not letting China build the Internet of the future, and he understands the importance of the European nations being where the battleground is going to be fought over this, I think he'd make a great choice. That being said, I think whoever gets to be the next national, the real, not just acting, but director of national intelligence needs to be somebody who has Trump's complete trust. We get that. It also needs to be somebody who's got the height of a rhinoceros because whoever gets the job will just be getting beaten up in the press every single day with leaks, with backstabbing. So it's going to be a hard job. And then the third thing is that whoever it is, I think, is going to be having a real issue and probably one of the most important jobs of the Trump administration in the second term. I do believe that the Durham report, which is the investigation of the investigators in the Intelligence Committee, has the potential of shaking the intelligence community to its foundation. Um, Not just the FBI and Justice Department, but the intelligence community writ large. So um, National Security Agency, Central Intelligence Agency, all the rest. And so I think whoever takes the job is going to have a major confidence building and probably rebuilding of the American intelligence community. Let's switch gears for a moment and talk about an issue that I know that you're very concerned about, and that's America's fascination with socialism. What do you think it is about socialism that has really captivated so many Americans, particularly the young people of America? Well, it's not just college-age kids, but it's, it's, right, it's, it's sort of the, you know, under 30. It's the sort of under-30-age kids who graduate from college, huge student loans, can't pay them back, can't afford a down payment on a place to live, having a trouble finding the job of their dreams. So it's that whole combination of dissatisfied people, and they're right. They've got something to complain about. But... I've, I've spent my whole life, 50 years in the foreign policy world, studying countries, what works, what doesn't work, what political systems, economic systems. Socialism never works. It always sounds good. It is terribly seductive. And the current version of it is, we'll cancel your student loans, you'll get free health care, we'll guarantee you an annual income, we'll give you free education if you don't already have it, and we're not going to have you pay for it. Somebody else will. That's very seductive. Who doesn't want that, right? Mm-hmm. But the dark and dirty underside of it is to get those things, which, A, it doesn't work. You won't get those things. But the dark and dirty underside is even if you got them, it would be at the expense of your own free choice. Yeah. Because government, big government has to be there to do what they're talking about doing. Big government, which will decide, take the money from the taxpayers and decide who's more deserving of it than others. It will be big government which decides how we treat each other. It will be big government to decide what rights you do and don't have. That's what I really am terrified of. What? And an unaccountable big government because they're not elected. They're there for life. You can't fire them. It's Washington on steroids. Mm-hmm. What would you say to the argument of, well, you know, socialism has really never been tried before, not fully. As someone who has, has studied so many countries, who has traveled so much, what would you say to those people? <laughs> it has been tried. It hasn't worked. Yeah. Never worked in Cuba. Didn't work in Nazi Germany, the National Socialist. Well, that was the Nazi party in Germany. It hasn't worked in, certainly didn't work in the Soviet Union. And as we're seeing now with China, which is a big state authoritarian control of the nation, it is not working to guarantee its people peace and prosperity. And the coronavirus is the perfect example. The Chinese government's known about this for a while, but they kept it secret. And they knew about it. The thing that really galls me is that they knew about it when they sent the senior-most Chinese leaders to the White House, to the Oval Office, to meet with Trump and sign a trade agreement, phase one trade agreement in January, February. 
and they knew they had a problem, and they did not say anything to anybody. Can you imagine what kind of a biological weapon that would be? Whether they developed it as a weapon or whether it just happened by, you know, genetic mutation. That's not the way you play on the world stage. Your book, Revolution, Trump, Washington, and We the People, has just been released. Why did you decide to write it? Oh, this is the best story of all. (laughs) Okay, so I go in the Trump administration. I'm really proud of the foreign policy. I leave. And then I get this knock on the door. I'm at my house in Long Island. I'm all alone. My husband had just left. And the knock on the door, and it's the guy, two guys from the FBI saying, we heard ask you a couple of questions from the Mueller investigation about Russian interference. And so stupid, naive me, I Girl Scout me, said, well, I want to find out what the Russians did, too. I want to find out what they did. I want to make sure they can't do it again. So I cooperated. Long and short of it is I spent 30 or 40 hours with them. They kept tricking. They, they kept. They had all of my files and access to everything I'd done. I like the Girl Scout I am. I turned it all over to the government when I left. They had it, and they were setting me up for a perjury trap. They were trying to trick me into making a mistake on what day I'd met or what I said in this phone call of a year and a half before. And then they would say to me, well, that's just not a human and honest mistake. That's a lie. And we're going to charge you with a crime. And I think from the way they asked the questions and the implication they gave is that they wanted me to say that president, to implicate President Trump in crimes he certainly did not commit. They wanted me to plead guilty to crimes I did not commit. And it was a hard thing. It was, I got to the point, Virginia, where I sat after hours of this and hundreds of thousands of dollars in legal fees. I turned to my husband and I said, what do they want me to say? I'll just say it to make this go away. And then he said, you can't do it. You can't lie. So I, my lawyer, best lawyer in the country, Bob Jifra, head of litigation at Sullivan and Cromwell, a big New York firm, he said to them, she's not going to say that she lied. She didn't lie. She's not going to say she did. And so eventually... They kind of went away. But I was so traumatized by this. If this is my government doing this to me, I've never done anything. They didn't even meet with any Russians. What are they doing this? If they do it to me, most powerful woman in the West Wing of the White House, they could do it to anybody. So I was so traumatized. My husband and I left the country. We escaped to the remote highlands of Scotland where there was no cell phone, no Wi-Fi, no TV for weeks. And I just tried to make sense of it all. And so I started writing. And I wrote this book in part to make sense of it, but in part to, as I started writing it, Virginia, and I realized, you know, we're going through a really horrible period in America right now. Everybody knows it. I don't care if you're Republican or Democrat or independent or vegan. We all understand it. But why are we doing it? And I think we're doing it because America is not a socialist nation. It's because we, the voters, have the right to change our government. And if our government says... No, we don't want to do things the way the American people do. Well, then it's time for a revolution. And I think we're in a revolution right now. It's why I call the book Revolution. And why at the end of it all, instead of being depressed and disheartened and all the rest, I'm actually quite encouraged about the future of the country. Because I think Donald Trump has awakened the American people who never cared. You know, the people who felt they weren't represented by the country and it kind of checked out. As I said at the beginning, I've studied countries for five decades. The countries of the world, most of them, they rise, they shine for a while as a great nation or a great empire, but then they inevitably decline. We're different. If we were only ones who were different, we rise, we shine, we decline for a little while, we reinvent ourselves, and we rise and shine again. 
And that, to me, is the essence of American exceptionalism. Yeah. Oh, I love that. Where can our listeners find your book and learn more about your story and all the work that you're doing? Number one on <laughs> Amazon right now. Perfect. So get it on Amazon. But for me, the most fun is I did the audio book myself. Oh, great. I wrote every word. I, most people just, they sit down with a ghostwriter, tell a couple of stories, the ghostwriter writes the book. I wrote every word myself. I rewrote every word. And then I spoke every word in the audio book. So if you really want to have some fun, download the audio book, listen to it while you drive around, and be converted and join the revolution with me. <laughs> Katie, thank you so thank much for you, your time Virginia. today. Thank really you. appreciate really it. Really great. Thank you. It's because of support from listeners like you that we can continue to produce podcasts like Heritage Explains and SCOTUS 101. And you can help us keep it up by going to www.heritage.org slash podcast today to make your tax-deductible gift. I am joined by Fred Flights, the president and CEO of the Center for Security Policy. He previously served as the deputy assistant to President Trump and chief of staff to National Security Advisor John Bolton. He also served in U.S. national security positions for 25 years with the CIA, DIA, and the Department of State and House Intelligence Committee. Thank you so much for being here, Mr. Flights. Great to be here. So let's begin by talking about your time in the administration. Speaking as someone who has worked closely with the president and national security advisor John Bolton, how would you describe this administration's approach to national security? It, it, it was refreshing to work for a president who threw out the diplomatic rule book, who was going against the foreign policy establishment and conventional wisdom to solve problems, to get us out of wars, not to start new wars, and to try some innovative things, such as personal diplomacy with Kim Jong-un. Now, we all know that that diplomacy has not completely succeeded yet, but frankly, it is significantly lower tension in the Korean Peninsula. It is the type of unconventional approach to solving uh, lingering problems that other presidents wouldn't have attempted. It was a real pleasure to work for Mr. Trump to help him implement these policies. What are some of uh, your proudest moments or, or would you say greatest accomplishments from working with the president on national security issues? By far, the most significant accomplishment I have, and I've worked on this with the Heritage Foundation, was to get the United States out of the nuclear deal with Iran. Now, this mostly started before I joined the administration in 2018. But look, the Center for Security Policy and Heritage are one of the few organizations around town who were exactly right that this nuclear deal was a fraud. It could not be fixed. It was the worst deal ever, as the president said, and that we had to get out of it. Now, the center uh, played a role in writing a memo which helped get uh, the president out of, out of the agreement. It was difficult because the president's initial set of advisors were all against us withdrawing because the foreign policy establishment and European leaders said we can't. Well, look. President Trump doesn't answer to Europe. He did what he thought was best for the United States, and I was very proud for the role I played in that decision. Absolutely. What would you say is one of the greatest security threats that is facing America today? I think the greatest security threat is China. No question. There's lots of threats worldwide. 
proliferation of nuclear weapons, Iran, Syria, Russia. But China, I think, is, is an enormous and growing and future threat, an economic threat, a military threat, an intelligence threat, a cyber threat. And now we're seeing, because of this backward authoritarian system, when some outlier threat like coronavirus comes up, their backward system makes it worse. The secrecy, uh, the lack of sharing information, not allowing experts into the country, this could have been contained in China. If China was honest with its people, if it was honest with the international community, and I worry what's going to happen when there's a far more serious virus that erupts in China, what will happen? What if it's another Spanish flu that starts in China and it goes all over the world because the Chinese officials refuse to deal with it effectively? Do you think that coronavirus will affect China's position on the world stage? I think it's going to affect it. But, you know, there were predictions a few years ago that China would be the leading economy in a few years. Before coronavirus, it was pretty clear this is not going to be the case. They have a problem with birth rates. The one-child system has significantly hurt uh, the, the number of working Chinese to, to, to run factories. And there's other problems with the Chinese economy. As their economy does better, factories are moving out because salaries are going up. Look, China's a terrible place to do business because of the authoritarian regime and the fact that uh, trade is not fair, that Chinese companies give an advantage. So if you run a multinational corporation, if you don't have to do business in China, you won't. And those companies are moving their factories to Vietnam and to Malaysia and Bangladesh. And under President Trump, they're moving back to the U.S. So what is this administration doing to combat the threat of China? The administration is doing a couple of things. First of all, it recognizes that China is a multifaceted threat that we have to stand up to. At the same time, we're trying to get a trade deal that has advantages for both sides. Now, there are some experts in heritage deals with them all the time who say we can't trust China, we can't deal with them at all. I don't think that's the solution because China's not going away. And the president's negotiators are trying to get the best deal possible with China that addresses predatory trade, theft of intellectual property, and, and, and other uh, uh, unethical trade practices. In the short term, we're making small progress, and we're a lot better than we were under the Obama administration. There's still a long way to go, though. So let's fast forward 10, 20 years into the future. Do you still see China as being a, a very prominent national security threat, or do you see other things on the horizon that we need to be preparing for now as a nation? I think China will still be a major security threat. I think the regime has, an, has a, basically a, a, such control over the population. They've been so brainwashed. It's going to be hard for democracy to seek into that country. But I think the Chinese people are increasingly aware of, of you know, the fact that they are being run by a government that does not have their interests at heart, that is authoritarian, that is not doing what is in the interest of the people. And I think the coronavirus is something that is that is pointed to that. I think China will continue to be a threat for a long time to come. Uh, I'm worried about the proliferation of nuclear weapons. I'm worried about Iran and North Korea trying to acquire these weapons. I'm worried about Russia, but Russia as much as a threat as it is, is a declining power. I don't think China is a declining power and will remain a significant threat for many years to come. I'm glad that you mentioned Iran and North Korea. Let's talk a little bit about what's going on in those nations uh, 
as it does regard their, their nuclear power. Can you explain that a little bit further? Well, concerning Iran, we had this fraudulent nuclear deal that Barack Obama negotiated. And typically, the way many Republican and Democratic administrations ne negotiated the deal, we wanted the deal bet more than the Iranians did. We gave them every concession possible. It allowed Iran to continue to engage in nuclear weapons-related technologies by enriching uranium, by operating a reactor that would produce plutonium, had very weak uh, verification. It lifted sanctions from terrorists. It did not include missiles, which is a nuclear delivery system. And there's clear evidence that Iran was cheating. The president got us out of that deal, put on a pressure called a, a strategy called maximum pressure, which was a good alternative to this disastrous policy. And basically, we've given the message to the Iranians, either you negotiate with us or we're going to keep the screws on. And we know Iran's economy and its influence throughout the Middle East has suffered greatly because of the president's policies. Concerning North Korea, the president took a very tough stand against North Korea in 2017, and he had to. There were 76 North Korean missile tests during the Obama administration, four nuclear weapons tests, 17 missile tests in 2017, and a, a test of what might have been a hydrogen bomb in September 2017. The president's very tough rhetoric and threats and forcing other nations to comply with sanctions and the president's statement of the U.N. General Assembly that he would utterly destroy North Korea if it continued to threaten the United States and its allies brought the North Koreans to the negotiating table. It's, they suspended their nuclear test. They did resume some short-term missile tests last year. But, I mean, we're on a trajectory where there is a chance for peace. I think it's a small chance. We have to keep playing that out to see where it's going to go. I don't like current and former uh, officials saying that there's no chance that the president's policies will succeed. Let's see what happens. Let's play it out. So how, how do we go about playing that out? What is the next step for America and North Korea? I think both sides have made mistakes in the negotiations. The two heads of state, Kim and Trump, make an agreement, and then at the lower level, there's no follow-up, and there's bickering, and, and things don't go anywhere. This is mostly the fault of the, of the North Korean government. It is also the fault of the U.S. State Department, of lower-level officials who are not carrying out the president's policies. We have to have monthly meetings set up between a high-level Trump official and a high-level Kim official to start dialogue on how we can get to a final agreement. I think the Trump, President Trump should name a senior official, maybe Jared Kushner, to start this dialogue with the North Korean government. Some of the North Koreans can't turn down. Talk is what we have to... And I think if we start it, that the missile test will stop. And I don't know that we're going to get there, but I think we can increase the chance of getting an agreement. Really interesting. So let's take a minute, and I would love to just hear a little bit more about what you're doing at the Center for, uh, for Security Policy. Well, I'm very lucky to be CEO of a, of a small national security organization. We're trying to help keep our nation safe. We're, we're help, trying to help the president succeed as much as a nonprofit can. We're trying to follow up the nuclear deal. We're trying to help the president on North Korea. We have a very aggressive pol uh, program on the threat from China called the Committee on the, the Present Danger China that's, that's being run by our center's founder, Frank Gaffney. And we have a very important program on fighting anti-Semitism, uh, the project on global anti-Semitism and the U.S.-Israel relationship. It's headed by my colleague, Dr. David Wormser. For Americans like myself and those listening who, who love Israel, who want to see America stand with Israel, what can we do to be a part of that voice of, of really calling all of America to, to stand for the people of Israel? We need bipartisan opposition to any signs of anti-Semitism in the United States. It's absolutely unacceptable. We have to say to the Democratic Party, Nancy Pelosi, you have a good record standing up for Israel anti-Semitism, but when members of your caucus 
Congresswoman Omar, Congresswoman Tlaib, say things that are clearly prejudicial and hateful towards Jewish people in the state of Israel. We have to make it clear, Democrats or Republicans, that is unacceptable. We have to say to other members of, uh, other members of Congress, Republican and Democrat, this can't be tolerated in any, any way. We can't let this start to simmer up. We know what happened in the United Kingdom where Jeremy Corbyn, who, who was denounced as the year's worst anti-Semite by the leading rabbi of the UK, almost became the UK prime minister. He's the head of the Labour Party, one of the great political parties uh, in, in the Western world. Look what's happening in the United Kingdom. We can't let that happen here. For our listeners who want to find out more about your organization and what you're doing, how can they do that? Our website is called securefreedom.org. I hope they'll uh, go on there and check it out. We have some great analysis. And I have to tell you, I'm so grateful to the Heritage Foundation. They, they've been such a great partner in working to keep our nation safe, and we'll, we'll look forward to keep working with you. Well, we really appreciate all that you're doing, Mr. Flights, and thank you so much for your time today. Good to be here. And that'll do it for today's episode. Thanks for listening to the Daily Signal podcast brought to you from the Robert H. Bruce Radio Studio at the Heritage Foundation. Please be sure to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or Spotify. And please leave us a review or rating on Apple Podcasts and give us any feedback. We'll see you tomorrow. The Daily Signal podcast is brought to you by more than half a million members of the Heritage Foundation. It is executive produced by Kate Trinko and Rachel Del Judas. Sound designed by Lauren Evans, Thalia Rampersad, Mark Guiney, and John Pop. For more information, visit DailySignal.com.